Well, good morning. Welcome to Eastlake. My name is Brent. I'm the teaching pastor here. Glad that you are here today. We are concluding our three-week series in Vino. Veritas, inside of your program is a note sheet, and you can pull that out and write some things down in case I say anything interesting on there. Um, and there has been uh, two kind of conversations and talks leading up to today. So if you are listening to this or watching this or whatever, and you kind of like what you hear, but um, you feel like there's uh, more to be said or some things that maybe go unanswered, you might want to check out eastlaketricities.com slash talks. All of our talks are posted there, and you can watch or listen to them there. Uh, but the title of the series is called In Vino Veritas, in Latin it means In Wine Truth. Um, which basically means there's like, like some truth that comes out in life when kind of the walls of some of the stuff come down uh, through, um, through wine. And here's what's interesting about uh, wine in Scripture. We're, we're using wine as a springboard to talk about something different. We're using wine as a springboard to talk about joy uh, in, in, in life. Uh, and the reason that I feel like it's an adequate springboard is because when the Bible uses uh, wine, several, on several occasions, it uses it to describe an element of life worth living, either um, we, we talked about in week one, like a leisurely activity or a, an arrival, a, a place of, of this is where you've been, this is, this is something you're looking forward to. So let me, let me illustrate this real quick for you. Two, two um, verses that we're going to look at. One, it comes from a psalm. This is when um, David is describing kind of creation as a whole and what, what kind of brings fulfillment in life, what, what makes life worth living. And he says this in Psalm chapter 104, verse 14 and 15. He, as in God, makes the grass grow for cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, which is like, that's usually, I buy products to remove oil from making my face shine, but there's apparently here, this was a, a positive thing, and bread that sustains their hearts. Right. This is this is in the category of something that you would want. It, this is desirable. This is a long. And then Isaiah chapter fifty-five. This one's an interesting one because uh, the two genres of literature are completely different. Remember, the Bible is not a book; it's a collection of different books, lots of different authors, lots of different titles, uh, and they have different purposes for the writing. Psalms was like a song that was meant to be sung together to celebrate. We we just sang some songs together, and in between some of those songs were psalms that we kind of read or were read to us that we kind of represented kind of even prayers for us that we maybe wouldn't say or put into words. But when it's up there, we're like, yeah, me too, me too, me too. That's the point of why we do Psalms in between. Isaiah, however, is a, it's one of the prophetic books. It's a prophet. Uh, he was a major prophet. Just uh, There's major and minor prophets. Major just means his texts were bigger. There's a bigger, longer letter. Uh, and they were written during the time when Israel found itself in exile, in captivity, in Babylon. They felt like they were the chosen people of God. Uh, and then, uh, unfortunately, it, it feels like God kind of abandoned them, and they get occupied and then taken away, many of them, into exile in Babylon. And so then they begin, like these writings begin to form about, has God really forgotten about us? Were our ancestors joking when they were talking about us? Um, being like God's chosen people. Surely if God exists, um, he would not have allowed this, or maybe he's not strong enough to do this. What, what are we doing? And so a lot of the prophets would be like, this was kind of your fault. This is punishment. This is uh, a forgetting to listen and hear, adhere to the commandments of God. This is why we've gotten ourselves into this. But if we will turn and repent, there is a future, a hope for us. God has not forgotten about us. There is something that we can look forward to. That's what we're going to look at here. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. We're like, how is that even possible? That doesn't work. Um, when I've gone to Walmart, they always ask me for, how would you like to pay? You know what I mean? Um, so what is this, what is this?
is this economy where money is no longer a thing that you just walk up? It feels like I wouldn't want to be a producer in an economy like this. I would love to be a consumer, but a producer, that sounds like a, I'm working for nothing. So why would I, why would I do this? He's being melodramatic here. He's talking in hyperbole about um, a place uh, that is that when we come, everything, the things are provided for us, like this place, that this future, that this, wouldn't this be amazing? Wouldn't this, painting this picture of, of a future of hope and arrival? And so we know that that's true. And even our, our culture, like when you fly into the Pasco airport and you're waiting for your baggage on the one baggage claim that we have, it might be two, but I think it's just the same thing. I think it goes behind the wall and then comes back out and they're like, we have two baggage claims. But if you leave your bag on there long enough, it comes around the other side. You know what I mean? So uh, let's not build ourselves up too much. Anyways, as you're sitting there waiting for your bags for that half hour it takes for them to take, you know, 50 feet from the plane to the baggage carrel, um, what you, baggage carousel, what you find is on the walls of these pictures of advertisements for these wineries that exist because the Tri-Cities and Yakima and, and Red Mountain and Walla Walla, I mean, you can rent a limo, you can rent a van, we'll drive you places. You don't have to do anything except sip and taste and experience our wine. It's like this incredible tourism opportunity that the Tri-Cities has been known for. Um, and it, it pictures or it tries to attempt to market a life that seems to be desirable. And I remember reading, a, I got Kip, I used to get Kiplinger's Financial Magazine, which is like a, I don't, I don't even know how I, I got it. I think somebody signed me up or something. I don't remember how it worked. Anyways, Financial Magazine, and I got it. And I remember one of the things that talked about retirement and our culture uses wine to illustrate a life that's worth living, a, a life that you know could be, this is what your life could look like, a, a future of, of this. And in this scenario, in this magazine, it said, uh, it described three different types of retirements based on three different alcoholic beverages, beer being the cheapest, wine being in the middle of the road, and then champagne. If you want a beer retirement, you need to have $500,000 or a million dollars in your bank account. I can't remember the numbers, so if you're close to retirement, you're like, <laughs> you need way more than that. Sorry, I have no idea. I'm young. I have almost nothing. So it doesn't matter. Okay. Um, so I got a lot of time though, right? <laughs> Anyways, um, a beer retirement is like, you know, hey, things are all right. Like um, you, can, you, can, you can buy a beer, but uh, you know, it's, not, it's nothing fancy. You may own your house, but it's not it's not that great. You got a pool, but it's an above ground pool, okay? And, and then you move on, and in the wine type of lifestyle, uh, then, you, uh, th- then you're drinking wine instead of beer, and, and you have a little bit more. It's like one, 1.5 million or something like that in retirement. And then you're able to kind of do all of this, and here's what's open to you. And then champagne lifestyle is the one that uh, we know nothing about at all. So anyways, I won't even go in that direction. That, that's fine. But even in our culture, like that has, like wine has this avenue towards explaining something more than just the drink itself. And listen, I know I highlighted two passages. There are multiple passages in, in, in the Bible about wine, both good and bad. There are passages about, hey, don't, be, don't fall in love with wine. Don't be over, uh, over enthralled with it. Don't be abusive of it. It can, it can ruin you. Just like everything, if you give yourself over to this type of thing. And I, I know that there's cautionary stuff in there about it. I'm not, but here's the point. The point of this is not to draw a line in the sand about whether you should drink alcohol or not. That's, that's for your own prerogative, right? But in this, what I want to talk about is what does it have to say for us about joy? What does it have to say about uh, life and, and a life that is entirely um, worth living? Because here's why. Uh, much of our life, 
is spent in this balance between work and play, this idea of ethics and joy. Here's what I have to do because somebody told me to do it. Here's what I do because I want to do it. That's the joy. I have to do this. That's ethics. Um, I want to do this. This is joy. Uh, And for a lot of our life, since we live in an achievement-based culture, um, we work for a living, and work dominates a large chunk of our day um, and our work week and our life. And so, therefore, um, we find ourselves heavily into this ethics thing. I I do this because I have to, because my boss says, be here Monday at 8 a.m., and so that's where I'm at at 8 a.m., and and I don't leave until 5, and that's how life works for me. Uh, And then it translates into this kind of church experience as well, where we gather together, and ethics is the primary thing that we come to. Tell Brent, please... Tell me what the Bible has to say about how I should live my life, and I'm gonna. I take notes, and I try and I try and do better every week. I'm gonna try and do better. I I I, I hear what you're saying. I understand it, and I, I want to try and identify or walk as a Christian. So I'm gonna I'm gonna try and do this this week, and that, that's the circle of it. And so we've never really exposed ourselves to the ideas and the uplifting and the transcendental nature of joy. That we, we are we okay with a God who doesn't just make allowances for joy. I would have to give him joy every once in a while. I don't want him to think I'm too hard on him. Or is, or can we picture, can we open up our minds to the option that there is a God who actually experiences glory when that thing which he has created and as the apex of his creation experiences joy at that level? I th- see, I think that God, what I see in scripture is in, is glorified in our joy as well. Yes, there can be a selfish nature to joy. There can be a consumption thing that can become about my pride and my arrogance and what I deserve and I earned it. However, there is a flip side of things. The, the other option is not, well, then I will live this life of no joy and God will be glorified by my pathetic lifestyle. God's not, God's not up there going, thank you for being pathetic. That just makes me feel so much better about my creation, Right? You don't do that with your kids. You, you want your kids to live a happy and full life. It brings you joy when you walk with them through Main Street at Disneyland. The joy that they experience. You're like, that does something for you that is, that is, that is special, that is at the core, that makes you feel good about being a parent. I think in the same way, God doesn't make allowances for our joy. He actually celebrates that joy and it has a role in our current life and I think a picture of what life will be like in the future. Now, Today, I want to talk um, about a perspective of joy that we previously have not uh, addressed. C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite authors ever. He was an Oxford theologian, uh, actually an educator through the Oxford system um, back in like the 40s, 50s, 60s when he was kind of most popular. He actually died the same day as JFK, and um, he uh, came up through the educational system, was not a Christian. was, was raised in a pseudo-religious thing. I mean, everybody over there at that time was kind of like, you know, well, we do the church thing, but whatever. Uh, and then gained enough intellectual knowledge to be able to be like, you know what, that's, that feels like an intellectual crutch for a lot of people, so I'm out. Uh, he became an atheist. And then it says, he, he wrote a book much later called Surprised by Joy. Uh, and it talks about the transition from atheism towards Christianity. And he describes... What was it? Was it this argument? Was it somebody that you met? Was it a message that you heard? Was it a movie that you watched? Was it a near-death experience? CS, how would you describe why? Why would you leave that, that sort of a, a religious state or non-religious state probably and towards something that's more? 
And he says, I had this irrepressible, inconsolable joy in my life. He's like, I chased after joy. So my, in fact, he defines joy as this, the inconsolable longing of life, that, that there exists in the day-to-day existence that I go through, that I'm living, an inconsolable longing that is always at the back of my mind, like an itch that just can't fully be scratched. He goes in a, in a, in a more expensive thing. Here's, here's a quote for him. Joy itself, considered simply as an event in my own mind, turned out to be of no value at all. All the value lay in that of which joy was the desiring, the desiring, not the event. I thought that once I acquired that or did that or married her or achieved that job or made enough amount of money, that would be the event that would bring me joy. But what I found was I would get it and it wouldn't be there. It's actually, when I think about it now, it was in the desiring portion of it. And that object quite clearly was no state of my mind or body at all. In a way, I had proven this by elimination. In other words, I had a lot of things that I thought, well, that will bring me joy once I've acquired all of these things. Then I get that. That wasn't it, but that's okay. I've got all of these things left. And then I get that. And then that's okay. I'm just slowly eliminating it down to the spot where I'm like, I'm beginning to question if I'll ever actually achieve that state of consciousness that allows me to be satisfied with life, with who I am, and joyful about my existence and my experience. Uh, in a way, I had proven this by elimination. I tried everything in my own mind and body, as it were, asking myself, is this what you want? Is it this? And every single one of us, I don't know that we would like fully admit this to, to you know, strangers that we don't know or even people that we kind of are acquaintances with, but every one of us have gone through those periods of life where we've laid our head on our pillow at night and, and the things have raced in our mind around. We finally signed for that truck. We bought that house. We got married. We started having kids. We did this. We got a job. We went to college. And, and, it, and it's great. I love college. Um, I, love my, I love my friends. I love my wife. I, I wouldn't change it. But I have to admit that it didn't fulfill everything as much as I thought it would. I can't shake the fact that, is there more? Is there something beyond this? Is this what I really wanted? Is it this? Is it this that you want? I mean, it's like the parent who has this kid that is inconsolable. They're crying. They're bawling. And and I realized this week... um, that uh, so my my wife and I have three kids a nine year old and then twin four year olds and we are pregnant with our fourth so this like huge giant gap and you think that you're done out of this phase of life right and I, and I was getting my haircut uh, with, with somebody in, in the church and she just had a newborn and while we're doing it's in her she does it in her house and so we're there and this child is wailing the whole time and I love her and I love him and he's great um, but I'm like. Oh man, I'm entering in. I'm I'm about to go back into this. Like, what do you want? You want it shaken? You want a fa- pacifier? You want a bottle? What do you need? What do you need, buddy? You know, and they're inconsolable in this way. And 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 I realized in that moment, is this what you want? This is the question that she's asking. Is this what you want? You want Binky? You want the giraffe? You want this? You know, you you, you want to be like, is it? Shut up, man. Figure it out, bro. <laughs> But he's like six weeks old, so what do you do? You can't be that adult, right? Inconsolable longing. Desire and a strong feeling of wanting to have something or wishing for something to happen. Chance, hope, future, more. And we know, we know, we know, we know, at the back of our mind, it's not about the acquisition of things. We, for most of us, we're old enough in life to realize it can't be, it won't be that. It's the chase. 
We love the chase. In high school, you chased after girls because it was the chase. Then they said, yes, I want to be your girlfriend. And you go, I'm not interested anymore, right? And then it's like, oh, man, now that I have it, I don't know that I want it. And so, uh, so, even, so many of us, last night, many of us stayed up late at night to watch two men get in a boxing ring and punch each other's brains out, right? And we paid good money to do this. Uh, and the re- and I, listen, I'm not even into boxing. I don't care about boxing. And yet I stayed, I, I, I've got a paid a babysitter. I, I, I moved things aside. I moved my schedule around so I could, I could watch this thing. Why? A lot of it is because of this hype and all the buildup for it. And immediately after the fight, and if you don't know what fight I'm, I'm talking about, I'm sorry it didn't show up in your cave that you live in, but it was Mayweather and McGregor. Anyways, uh, immediately after the fight, Mayweather won in the 10th round. They go to do the interview, and they're like, so is this it? Is this the last fight? A question that they've asked him, because he's now fought 50 fights, and he's 50-0, and, and it's uh, you know this crazy streak, and it's unbelievable, and is this it? I'm done. He's like, yep, this is the last fight I'll ever fight, which is what he said about the last six fights. So I'm, everybody's like, yeah, okay, all right, all right, all right, yeah, yeah, sure. And then you know when you need money or when the numbers get big enough, you're going to come out of retirement and do this thing. But I, I think in that moment... Um, he, like many professional athletes, in that moment go, man, my, I, my, I'm getting old, I'm, I'm hurting in this moment, don't ask me about retirement now. This is, these are the questions that come after every national championship or every Super Bowl. So is that it? Is that it? And people are like, yeah, I'm, I hurt, man. I'm like, I'm limping to my car. I want to be able to have a, a, I want to be able to have a, a, a life, a, a quality of life with my kids. I want to be able to go play football with them or throw the baseball around, and I just don't know if I can do it anymore. So yeah, I leave. And, and then what happens? Like You read about these guys later, and they, they miss, what do they miss? They miss the chase. They miss the desire. They miss wanting to go after just one more ring. They miss the experience of walking out of the tunnel with the flames going everywhere, the music blaring loud, and 70,000 mad screaming fans chanting their name as a hawk goes through the tunnel and leads them out onto the field. I mean, that's like, that's what they, uh, this is the desire. This is, this is what I want, this longing. And then once we get it, we're like, I mean, this is great. I mean, I don't want to change it. I, I wouldn't go back and lose. I want to win, but um, it's more. It's something different. It's not exactly what I thought it would be. I, I, I've got to have something more than that. Has anybody ever had that you know, a close friend or a, a, somebody closer than an acquaintance, have a job that's cooler than yours? That you're like, if I had your job, then I would be, then I would be awesome. I have what I consider to be a very cool job. I love what I do. I get a chance to come up and um, talk to people, uh, laugh, uh, challenge them intellectually. I love that. I love intellectual stimulation. I like reading. I love transferring what I read. I love regurgitating that to everybody else. I, I enjoy. Here's a, here's a big piece of the, the thing of life that I love too. I get to be an active participant in some of the biggest, most humanizing events and days of people's lives. Um, yesterday, I got a chance to dress up and be a part of a wedding ceremony where two people stood in front of about 100 people that they loved and made and exchanged vows with one another of current and future love through a wedding. And I got the chance to meet with them. I got a chance to 
hand them the papers and read the things back to them and say the words for them that they would say as they made these promises. It's so cool to be a part of that. Like very, very, um, I don't know, transcendental, awesome experience. Not something that you, you most people get to experience, right? Um, after the service today, I'm going to get in my car and uh, go home and dress up again and uh, go be a part of a funeral. I, I, I get to officiate um, somebody's funeral, somebody who had attended the church uh, here a while ago. And um, in those moments, this is the, these are like the highs and lows, man. When we need people, I get to do, I get to be a part of people's baptismal testimonies. Um, when they start serving, I get to do uh, 101 when they decided that this is going to be their church home, their child dedications. I get to hold kids as they recognize publicly that children are gay. I mean, it's really cool, man. I, I love what I do. I would not trade it for probably 99% of the jobs in America. However, about two months ago, a guy showed up at my small group on a Monday morning. Monday morning, 5.30, uh, we do a men's group coffee, and we read through some stuff together. And, and uh, Anyways, this guy named Mark shows up, never met him before, introduced himself to us. I say, uh, you know, just general introductions. Here's the group. I saw that you signed up via the community marketplace page and glad you're here, that kind of thing. And, and he seemed like a really great guy. So afterwards, I do what I always do, stalk him on Facebook, see what he's about, right? And I saw a picture of Mark on his Facebook, his profile pic, and it's him dressed up as a basketball referee standing next to Mark Few who you may not know, but is the head coach of the Gonzaga Bulldogs basketball team and my favorite team of anything. Um, and I said, uh, well, that's sort of interesting. So next week when Mark showed up, he walked in the room. I said, hey, man, you got to explain this. Were you like coaching like a summer league or how did you, was he there to watch his kid play in, in some sort of AAU thing? And he said, no, I'm actually uh, one of the head referees of the NCAA college basketball division, specifically in the West Coast Conference. I do Gonzaga, I, I do uh, Pepperdine, I do all, all those home games. I travel around and, and, and uh, I said, uh, that is a really cool job. And he's like, yeah, it's pretty cool. And I was like, no, like you don't, those are the hardest, just so you know. Gonzaga, the kennel, are the hardest tickets to get in Washington of any sport. They're like 200 bucks for nosebleed. And there's only 5,000 seats in the auditorium, and, and it's, most of them go to some of the students there. It's, it's like impossible to get season tickets. It's impossible to find tickets to these things. He not only gets to go to the games, he's on the court, <laughs> rubbing shoulders, making friends and enemies with the coaching staff and all of the players. I said, that is amazing. I cannot believe that you get to do that full time with your life. He's like, yeah, it's not the only thing that I do, but that's a big part of what I do. Um, during the off season, what I do is uh, I do drug testing for other professional athletes and other professional teams. I, I said, like, what? Like, try to see Dust Devils? He's like, yeah, Dust Devils, uh, Spokane Indians, but I also do it for the NFL. So he's like, actually, later today, this is like a couple weeks ago, I drive over to the VMAC and uh, I do drug testing on all of the uh, NFL players that are, are, are there. And I said, I was so angry. I said, tell me more. So you, so you hang out with these guys? You talk to them? You, he's like, yeah, dude, I, I, uh, 
I've seen more of them than most people have seen. <laughs> Knees to noggin, dude. That's what he says. Those are the rules. And I, if they're not there, then I get to drive to their house. I have all of their personal addresses. I go to their house. And when I ring the doorbell, they have four hours. This is what he says. They have four hours to you know, legally provide me with a uh, specimen. I'm trying to be careful with my words here. A specimen. Uh, and, and so sometimes they're not there, so I'll be hanging out with the family or the entourage, the guys or whatever, just killing time while this thing happens. Or, you know just hanging out with him. And I was like, amazing. He's like, it's not all it's cracked up to be, man. I have to watch grown men pee into a cup. And I was like, yeah, I, I would, I, I'm in, I'm in for that. I, <laughs> I'd do that. I'll trade you. You want to trade? I said, I, I told him, I told him, I said, I would not trade my job for a lot of people, but I would probably make an exception for your job. It sounds amazing. And I know he's, he goes back and forth. He says, ah, it's not all it's cracked up to be. It's more complicated than that. I know, I know, I know, I know. And we know that. I mean, like, they, they, that you have friends who have gone into a line of work that just seems like they enjoy their job and they really do. And, and, and even in those moments, even in the days that they say, I love what I do, but it's, it's more complicated than that, right? Um, I'm not always satisfied. It's not always cool to drive three hours to go to the VMAC. The VMAC gets old. Oh, there's Earl Thomas again. Just, hey, uh, whatever. He's always 10 minutes late to the meetings. Can't stand that guy. Whatever. As, as cool as we think it would be, it, it feels sometimes a little bit off-putting. Uh, in, in that moment. You want it, then you get it, and it's great, but then what? And we ask ourselves the question, or we find ourselves, our conscience driving this question into our brains. Is this what you want? Is this it? Is it this? You see other people with a greater sense of joy, or you see people experiencing a level of play and leisure that you kind of want, and, and so you think, oh, if I can just acquire a little bit more money and get a little bit further on in life, and then, then I'll have that too, and then, and then you get it, and you saved enough, uh, enough money, and then you sign for the boat, and you got the boat, and it's just a few easy payments, whatever, it doesn't matter. Is this it? This is what you wanted? Or is it something more? I mean, this is what is the driving thing of the economic engine in this country, marketing, advertising. We have that thing that is going to bring fulfillment and pleasure and joy and a sense of accomplishment and really shape your identity as a person. It's right over here. If you'll just follow me around the corner for seven easy payments, uh, you can sign up and you too can have it. And then when you buy it, then unfortunately, a lot of the things over promises and under deliver, and that's the game. And, uh, and so then it's like, oh, not this one, but the next one. Sorry, that one didn't work, but this one we, we promise will. And it's this big, giant game. Listen, we live in a culture, an achievement-based culture that I will, from here on out, describe as the game. Here's the game that we play. You're not happy right now. You know that you aren't, all right? You, you've got this great facade. Everything looks great. Some people can tell, some people can't, but like you know, your spouse may not even know, but you know, you're not like, you're happy, but not, it could be more. There's still, there's still a longing out there that's inconsolable that no matter what you buy, but it's, it's, it's available. It's just a little bit of out of reach right now. But if you'll continue to play the game, 
If you'll continue to overinvest and continue to overgive and overwork, listen, the problem is you just haven't achieved enough. You haven't worked long enough. If you do a few more hours, if you move up the corporate ladder a few more times, and then every once in a while we get invitations to get out of the game a little bit, to take a job that doesn't make quite as much money, but there's like a little life satisfaction, but we have this uh, this aching inside of us. We have this voice in the back of our head that says, but listen, if you get out now, Listen, if you get behind, you're going to fall behind. You're going to miss out if you choose to do this. It's great that you just had a kid. If you choose to forego your career to stay home with this kid, to raise this kid, because staying at home with your kids is important to you, that's fine, but you're going to be back on a single family income, and it's going to be a little bit difficult. It's going to be tough. Financially, you're going to fall behind. You wanted that champagne retirement. It's looking more like a wine, maybe even a beer retirement. We'll have to see. I don't know. There's a market fluctuality. I don't know. It's, 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 who knows what this is going to look like? If that's the game that you want to play, and so we're like, ugh, we struggle with this. And every once in a while, we see people who decide because liberation is important to them, I'm out. I don't want to play the game anymore. I don't want to do this. And we admire them. We kind of have like a certain respect for them, but we're not willing to make that adjustments too. We ask them, did it work for you? Are you, are you happy now? And they say, yeah, I'm happy. But we're like, yeah, but um, you have an above ground pool though, don't you? It'd be nice if that was in ground, wouldn't it? Yeah. But what do you do? Yeah. Okay, see ya. And you get back in your car and you go back to your life and you go back to work on Monday and you keep struggle, 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 struggle. And it feels a little bit overwhelming. And um, the game doesn't like it when you don't take it seriously. You see, the call for Christianity is to understand that an achievement-based culture always overpromises and underdelivers, and that our identity is not found in our what we can produce, but in who we find ourselves in through Christ. Now, I'm going to get there. Like, there's there's this hope coming, right? Okay, but uh, that's the message <clears throat> that is communicated. Take this seriously. This is serious business. Um, and when we don't, when we when we say, "Listen, I'm going to refuse." to play that because I live with this inconsolable longing. I know that that can't. So I begin to like laugh in the face of those who say, take this seriously. And they don't like it when you do that. (laughs) Um, My son this morning, my wife's out of town, so I have dad duty all weekend. Uh, And so getting them ready for a church on Sunday is a challenge. And they found themselves playing this imaginary game. I have two twin four-year-olds that operate on very different wavelengths. Uh, My son is um, active. He's an extrovert. My daughter is creative, but an introvert. And he wanted to play this game and was interested in having us all play it together. I'm scrambling to get things ready. Jovi just wants to play by herself. And he's over there saying, Jovi, 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 play, play, play. I'm an Ask me if I'm an egg. He had curled up on the couch, bundled himself like this. Ask me if I'm an egg. She looks at him and then goes back to drawing just like this. And he's like, no, no, no. Ask me, excuse me. Ask me if I'm an egg. She's like, are you an egg? He goes, yes. 
ask me when I'm going to hatch. And she realized, oh, I'm not playing this game anymore. So she, then she completely refused to do all of this. And he was getting so frustrated, so angry. Just play. <coughs> Excuse me. Just, just come on. How hard is it to just ask me a few questions in this way? And you're like, I don't. She didn't want to take him seriously, and it bugged him to death. Has anybody ever tried to teach you a very complicated board game before, and they're trying to explain these rules to you? <laughs> and, and there's all kinds of, well, if you do this, then what happens is you, then the dragons can come, and they, have, they can go three spaces, but then if you go four spaces, then they have to go back, and you're like, no, I'm not playing this game. <laughs> and they're like, no, 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 it's so fun, it's so fun, it's so fun, I promise, you'll love it, and it's super easy, just... Let's just get started, and then we'll, and then we'll play. And then, they, and then they go, all right, I have, a, I have a, a force power of three. And you're like, I'm out. I'm, I'm so out. I just I can't do this anymore. And they're like, no, just, uh, just, just play with me. <clears throat> and they, there's, there's, a, there's a sense in which I know it's not reality, but I need you to take it serious. I know it's... I know it's not fully real, but I need you to take it seriously enough so that we can participate together. Don't, don't bend the rules of this game. Don't do this, right? Uh, and in a sense, I think most people live in this world knowing that the acquisition of stuff isn't going to get me there. But what are my other options? Let's all just play it seriously enough and, and get through with it. And uh, I think for those of us who identify as Christian, the challenge then becomes something a little bit different. Um, and, and it's described here, C.S. Lewis, one more time. If I find myself, if I find in myself, excuse me, a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If I find myself in myself this joy, this inconsolable longing, this desire for something different that doesn't seem to be satisfied in the here and now, that I just can't seem to, no relationship can fill that void. Like I get married and the marriage is happy, but, and, and it's fine, and I'm, I'm completely vulnerable to this one person, and she loves me anyways, and that's the beauty of marriage, and it's, it's awesome. And yet there's still like frustration there, um, and it flares up and down, and it, we go through, and we're just trying to make it work, and it, it doesn't mean we're not going to stay married, but it just means that we're just still working on it, and it's still... It's still missing. I thought that that would solve all my problems, and it didn't. If I find myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. That there exists within us this thing that I think God has given us. Listen, I'm a Christian. This is my perspective on it. Take it or disagree with it. I think, it, listen, if, if all of this is bunk to you and, and you're not really a Christian and somebody bribes you to come with lunch afterwards, then that's fine. And this is the healthy uh, next step for you in this would be like search introspectively of what is that longing? What, what, you know, why do I keep chasing something? Why is it the chase that's more important than the acquisition of it? Um, for those of us who are Christians, we take it one step further and we say our identity is not found then. The way out of this chase, the way out of this struggle is to not play that game anymore. We have to exist to provide for our family. That's, that's not what I'm talking about. But what I'm saying is, uh, in, in light of that, I don't place too much stock in the game. <laughs> My identity, the sense of worth, the sense of well-being, the sense of who am I and what is important to me and what speaks of me is not found in the game. It's found instead in Christ. It's found in something different, something bigger and beyond for me. Somebody who offers something different. 
With that in mind, I want to look and close by looking at the words of Jesus in John chapter 15. This is towards the end of his public ministry. This is one of the last things he would say, one of the last discourses he would have or conversations he would have with his disciples. Looking back at all of my teaching, looking back at all the experiences that we've had together, look at all the things that we've been through and the things that you've watched me in the way that I've talked about this coming kingdom of God and how it's exemplified by love and loving one another. I have said these things to you. He speaks, he's not to you, Brent, and everybody else in the room 2,000 years from now. He's looking at his disciples and he's saying this to you, so that my joy may be complete or may be in you and that your joy may be complete. That, that inconsolable longing may be complete. That when you give your life to me, to this, to something other, what I can promise you in that moment is actual, true fulfillment. Father, I pray that we would wake up to the longing that that maybe perhaps the words that were spoken today put into form uh, and and addressed a real issue in all of us, uh, that inconsolable longing. And we may not know, we may not connect the dots exactly as to how that's done in Christ, but when, when, when Jesus was with his disciples, he said that my joy may be complete in you and make you uh, complete. I pray that that would be more so than like the rewards of heaven or what we can expect if we do the right things or push the right buttons or say the right prayers in this life, but that we could potentially live with the knowing, with the understanding, with the love of our identity found not in our achievements, but in who you are and who your son was, what he did for us, what he says about us, and what he says we can become. So give us each the wisdom to know what to do with this, the courage to act on it in your name. Amen.